listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Got to spend the whole week with my son leading up to Father's Day. We uh, went out to camp Thursday, Friday, Saturday for kids camp. Um, I saw a lot of your kids out there as well. And, but before that, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he came to work with me. And so we had just a lapse in the childcare for the week and decided he was going to come, he's going to come to work with me. And he had gotten from his aunt this like 10 billion piece Lego set that he had uh, got. That's might be an exaggeration, but, um, this, this Lego set that I thought was going to take him all summer. And I was like, good, he'll have something to do. We'll set him up a table in my office. We'll just do it that way. It took him two days to finish this thing. Um, It is the Discovery Space Shuttle with the Hubble telescope that goes inside of it. It's amazing. Can't wait to step on these pieces all over my house. It's going to be awesome. Um, But uh, there was one moment of crisis as we were sitting in my office, and I could hear him kind of grunting and groaning a little bit. Something was not going well, and I was kind of letting him work it out to see what, you know, see what happened. And then he finally was like, Dad, this, this piece isn't fitting. If you know anything about Legos and the instructions, and this is like an, an 18-year-old plus deal. He's eight. And I was like, well, I thought you might have some, some issues a little bit, so just ask if you need help. And he said, Dad, it's, just, it's not fitting. I was like, all right, let's not, you know, let's not jam it in there. Let's, uh, let's figure out what, what's going on. And as, immediately as I got over there, because I'm older than 18, um, I could immediately tell that somewhere along the way, he had like just miscounted rows. And it started building, you know, like he had this big old long black platform and he just miscounted and he got off. But it wasn't like he had immediately noticed it. He's he's quite a ways down in the instructions. And so what I realized is at that point, as a dad, I'm now going to have to, you know, not only encourage him that he's doing a great job, but then tell him we have to take this whole thing apart um, and essentially start from from the beginning and he was, he was great. He was gracious with, with me. And we started looking back. And as I started flipping pages back, I was like, all right, well, where, here's, here's where the problem is. Where did that start? And we started flipping back in the pages. And um, we got like 10 or 15 pages back in the book. And it's like a really, really thick book. We got 10 or 15 pages back, realized where the error had happened. And then we were going to start to, you know, formulate. Well, this whole time I'm thinking like, this is going to make a great sermon illustration. Um, the whole time. I mean, that's, that's what I end up doing. I know my kids can see that in my eyes. It's just like, dad, you're not really helping me. You're helping yourself. So um, they'll, get, they'll get used to it. But um, as I was telling my wife this story on how he did such a great job backing up, and, you know, we were surprised at how fast he got this thing done. But I was telling her, like, I just kept going, like, oh, that's got to go in my sermon. Oh, that's got to go in my sermon. So the whole time I'm, like, distracted telling her. You can't imagine me being scatterbrained. But, um, but yeah, so, so we started. We, we started. He got the thing done. It was a great-looking Lego thing. I don't know what we're going to do for the rest of the summer. But if you've got any old Legos, send them our way. But um, we're, in, we're in week number two of this sermon, um, really long sermon that we've cut in half called Hope in the face of doubt. In the middle of our series, Hope in the Face of. Um, last week, I told you where we were headed in the, in the two sermons. Um, it kind of broke them down. And just as a review, last week, um, we explored this truth. That God invites us into a safe relationship that's not affected by our certainty. He's not afraid of our questions and our doubts. And we looked throughout the scriptures of all of the, um, the not all of them, but many of the stories that we see of those who wrestled with doubt. 
Um, we call them biblical mentors who they give us hope in the face of these doubts that God allows us to bring these doubts to him. Our doubts are real and our God is also real. And then we also identified some of the markers of a spiritual journey that um, theologians have, have, have seen over the course of history. And you even see them in these stories from construction to deconstruction to reconstruction, from orientation to disorientation to reorientation, all the different names that we kind of labeled those as. And if you wanted to just say one word about what last week was, it was just permission. It was just permission. Many of us grew up in spaces where we weren't allowed to ask questions. It was, it was because I said so, or do it because I'm in charge, or, or might means right. And, and last week was, I just wanted to give permission that, that our God is real, our questions are real, and that he wants and invites us in to bring those questions. And this week, if I could put one word on it, if last week was permission, this week is the path. The path, how do we approach doubt, uncertainty, inconsistencies, deconstruction, all of this? How do we approach it um, without losing our faith? How do we question our faith without losing it? And so here's this week's big truth. The dominant thought that I hope you walk out of here with today is that the healthiest and most biblical way to find hope in the face of doubt is not to avoid it, but to walk through it. And we're going to see an example of that, a very clear example of that in Psalm chapter 73. If you brought your Bibles or device, you can turn to Psalm chapter 73. This, the Psalms, as we've seen, cover a full scope of emotional, physical, spiritual experiences. Uh, they're not just happy songs to sing in church. They're not like the, the, you know, the, the up and up-tempo hymns. There's a lot of lamenting psalms, and that's what we've been looking at. Sprinkled throughout the psalms, we see these honest, raw, and sometimes even critical and skeptical words to God. We're singing our praises to God, and we like the songs where we raise our hallelujahs, but these are more like raising our fists and saying, God, I've got some questions. These deep songs of lament, raw, critical. God, God allows these. He doesn't smite them. As a matter of fact, he allows them in his holy word. And this psalm is no different. Here we, um, we see the songwriter Asaph. This man Asaph is a musician in the temple and he actually only wrote 12 songs. He was that much of a downer. He's like, bro, you're kind of a drag. Like, let's just, you know, how about some happy songs? Let's give it back to David and his harp. Like we need to chill because he just wrote all laments. All of his psalms are attributed as laments. Most of them are what they call communal uh, laments. So like the whole congregation. So there's a lot of like, like we are lamenting together, or like as a, as a, as a community, we're walking through this together with the exception of Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a very, very personal lament. I mean, this is one of those where like, you think maybe I shouldn't release this song. Maybe he's like written it and he's like, maybe I shouldn't let everybody know this much behind the curtain. I shouldn't show him this much. Here we see he's going to let us behind the curtain of a doubting temple worker. He could have been more vague. He could have been, uh, you know, changed all of the I statements to we statements. He could have made it a communal hymn, but I'm so glad that he didn't. So much like the stories of Moses and Job and, and John the Baptist and Thomas that we saw last week, the Bible lets us see into the real raw emotions of the characters in those stories. It lets us see the process. It's going to let us see Asaph's deconstruction and reconstruction and renewal. It doesn't skip the raw parts. Tim, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he says it this way. The, the phenomenon of the Bible is this. People's words doubting God have become God's word to doubting people. Think about that. 
The, the, the word of God that we read here this morning is the stories of doubting people. This is how God helps us. This is how God helps us walk the path of doubt. We look at stories of those who have walked the path of doubt. We see their struggle. We see their cynicism. We see their hurt. We see the real raw emotion of it. And so if you look in your Bibles there at Psalm chapter 73, the first two verses, Asaph starts like this. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. Now, if you just read the first verse and you just saw, indeed, God is good to Israel. Well, God is good all the time. You know, that's that you see somebody in the church lobby on Sunday morning. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing great. I can't complain. Better than I deserve. All of those kind of things we say. And then in the back of our minds, we really actually have some complaints. We really have some things. We're like, I really should be doing better than I am. Um, but you don't want to do that in the church lobby. So, uh, so uh, he starts this psalm. It, it's actually kind of read in a sarcastic way, which is my favorite way to read anything, right? A sarcastic way of like, uh, God is indeed good. Or like, God is good, right? Right? Are we all on the same page here? God is good to the pure in heart. Like if we do the right things, God's going to be good to us. He's saying, I, you know, God is good. I can't complain, but he really does have complaints. As a matter of fact, the majority of this psalm will be complaints, it's a little bit whiny if you, if you kind of read it in that way. In context, you'll see this opening line is more about doubt than it is praise. It's more of a question than it is an answer. God is here, right? God is good, right? He takes care of his people, right? That's what we believe. That's what we know. And so Asaf is writing this psalm from the other side of some kind of spiritual crisis, some kind of faith crisis that he has walked through. He describes it kind of like a, a rock climber or a mountain climber who has lost his footing and has no, um, you know, no safety net or safety rope below him. My doubt, he says, almost took me out. I almost fell. The rest of the psalm is his testimony. How did he do it? How has he questioned and doubted and came so close to the edge? He just steps away from a believer in God to being an atheist, but now he's secure in God. And so our questions are very obvious to him. How did he do it? His doubts were big. He's accusing God of not being good. He's feeling like God doesn't care. He's shaking his fist at the sky saying, God, how could you? How did he come back? So this morning, I want to look at Asaf's journey through his deconstruction and through his renewal. And I think we can come on the other side with this idea that his words to God become God's words to us. In our seasons of doubt. So look at verses 3 through 9. We start to see that Asaf, um, he identifies some sources here of what he's really mad about. What's he, what's he being so sarcastic about? Why is he so, um, you know, kind of bitter and almost snappy about it? Here's, here's why. He says in verse 3, For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. The Bible literally says there, they, they, they have a, an easy life even when they're dying. And so it says, and, and their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. Just think about that for a second. That's very descriptive. I don't, I'm going to type that into like an AI generator and see what comes out. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run wild. They mock they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threat oppression, threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. This is a very common doubt. 
Now, this is a common doubt that we see cited in every survey of, of, of atheists or every apologetics book that you're going to read. Every highly promoted debate between a scientist and a believer. Everyone wants to struggle with this doubt. If God is so good, why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much pain? Why is there so much suffering? If God says that he's good and then I look at the world that I believe that he created... Why does it seem so awful? Why does it seem so terrible? We've been dealing with some of these big questions throughout this series. Why why do I go through grief? Why am I having to wait on God? Why does it feel like God is absent? And it's a valid question, as are many of our doubts. But Asaph, in processing his, his faith, in processing what he's upset about, he really starts to see another source of his anger. He's turned his fist to the sky and yelled at God, but he starts to see what he's really angry about. If you look there, you'll notice in, verse, in that first verse we read, it says that, that I saw the prosperity of the wicked and I envied the arrogant. He's not mad that their eyes are bulging out because they're so well-fed and they're fat. He's not mad that they're prideful or malicious. He's not like, ooh, wicked people, I'm so disgusted by them. He envies them. He's jealous of them. He wants to be like them because it seems like they can do whatever they want and have no consequences. That they're getting ahead and they just get to, they get to do whatever. They have no roadblocks. They have no pain. Even on their deathbed, they have no restrictions, no greed. Their tongues get to say whatever they want. They get to speak whatever comes to their head. Their hearts run wild. They have no shame. The actual word that he uses there for prosperity, I saw the prosperity, is the word shalom. We know what the word shalom means, right? Peace. He's actually just jealous that the, that the wicked, the unrighteous, have peace. He says, he says, I saw the peace of the wicked, and it bothers me. But not bothers me like, ooh, they're wicked. It bothers me. I want that. I want that peace. And so... Their hearts run wild with no shame, and we just see that he's jealous. What's a real source of his doubt? One of the most crucial parts of questioning your faith without losing it is to ask this question. What is the true source of my doubt? What is the true source of my doubt? You want to speak of it clinically, this is idea of projection, where you, um, where, where you feel something and you lash out at someone, but it's not really the person that you're mad at. Sometimes we shake our fist at God, and we're not really mad at God. We have a belief in God, but it isn't aligning with the experience that we're having, whether it's with other people or with the world. We know God one way, but we see the world in another way. We believe that God is good, and then we look around the world, and we see untamed injustice. We see greed. We see vanity. So to ask ourselves the question, what's the true source of my doubt? What, what, why does my foot keep slipping here? If I truly believe that God is good, why do I see all of these injustices? What am I really upset about? But I project this pain from somewhere else. The pastor um, out in Vancouver, Washington, Joshua Porter, writes in his book, Death to Deconstruction. He identifies some of the modern sources of doubt. Um, He calls them the five great predators of faith. Uh, They're sources that many cite today from walking away. If you have a conversation with a young adult that's walked away from the faith, you're likely to hear one of these as the reasons. I just put all all five of them up on the screen here. Um, Biblical illiteracy. The problem of evil, politicized Christianity, hypocrisy, self-denial. I want to read you just his descriptions of each of those. Um, I promise I read the whole book, but in the first few chapters, he gives you just the, the, the rundown. Here's what he says. The first great predator is biblical illiteracy. 
Although the Bible is an ancient book of writings drafted by dozens of authors across multiple continents in several languages, over several centuries, the most complex literary, literary volume in history is usually perused like some simple, superficial thing and dismissed by angry readers who don't understand the passages that often offend them. Who can blame them? They've never been taught how to read it. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said that the, the depths and the truths of God should be shallow enough for a baby to splash around in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown. There is complexity when we approach the Bible and we do ourselves a disservice or we take the quick way out when we just grab a verse and rip it out of its context and we use it as a weapon against someone who is hurting or someone who is, is going through something or we slap it on a coffee mug and we say, got it all, all I need is coffee and Jesus, right? That's not in the Bible, by the way. They didn't, they didn't have coffee. But. Second, the problem of evil. This is huge. If God is so good and powerful enough to do anything, why is there so much evil, injustice, and suffering in the world? Of all the great predators, this, is, this one is the most cunning. It lures its prey from the narrow road by traumatizing them. And in their pain, they become convinced that they can go no further. This is Job sitting in just a pile of dirt with all of his friends around him. He's been traumatized, questioning and doubting. The third great predator is a politicized Christianity. When oppressive, power-hungry bullies seem part and parcel to the Christian experience, who can blame the great many who want nothing to do with the ugly mob of mean-spirited, hypocritical Bible thumpers? I'm just going to leave that there. You guys can read the book and get mad at him. Uh, the fourth predator is hypocrisy. It's all tied together. Hypocrisy. It's, it's not just the seedy pockets of the church, crusades, the colonists, Jim Crow, the prosperity gospel. It often seems as if those most, those most ardent about Christian morality are the least likely to uphold it. If it's not the sex scandals and embezzlement of televangelists, it's the indulgent Instagram lifestyles of influential pastors or the casual racism of a church-going family member or the generally unkind face of evangelicalism. Hypocrisy. The final lumbering predator is self-denial. He says, even if you get past the politicians and the hypocrites, even if you survive your great tragedy with your faith intact, you will find that it all comes down to Jesus, whose invitation was deny yourself. And many modern Western individualists cannot abide by such an outrageous demand. Each one of these predators, as Josh even says in the book, he says that, that he fell for all five of them. He says, each one, these sources of doubt, these true sources of why we're shaking our fist at God has taken out hundreds, if not thousands of former youth leaders, elders, deacons, nursery volunteers, church staff members, camp counselors, and the list goes on and on and on. I can probably think of 10 right now, people that I, were, I was in the dorms with at Bible college who've gone through and one of these giant predators has taken them out. Exits that might've been avoided if some of these sources were identified before yelling at God. Now, that's all really heavy. And if you work in the spaces that I work with young adults and you've seen someone go through a process of deconstruction or question their faith and really, really struggle with it, you know that that's heavy. And these last few weeks of, of preparing for this sermon, I mean, it's like years of, of, of just thinking and thoughts of just the areas that I'm in, and it's been heavy. So I want to give you a kind of a silly illustration 
It kind of helps me understand this point. Sources of anger. I put in my notes here, the Denver Broncos made me hate football. Okay? Stick with me. Some of you are like, me too. Um, I've been a Denver Broncos fan for like 20 years. So more than half of my life. And there's been a lot of really great years being a Denver Broncos fan. You know, I can think of the, the, early, you know, the late nineties when we won two Super Bowls in a row. I can think of 2015 when we won the Super Bowl. That feels like 40 years ago. Um, but then I don't know if, I mean, you know where we live. So living in chiefs country, what do you guys call it? Chiefs kingdom. Oh, nation. I didn't know what it was. Okay. Um, living in the kingdom of God where the wicked prosper. I, um, just trying to stay pure here. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if you guys know this, but like Patrick Mahomes is pretty good. And the Denver Broncos, since my son has been an American citizen watching the Denver Broncos with me, he has never seen the Broncos beat Patrick Mahomes. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty brutal on Sundays around my house. You know, like it's, it's pretty rough. I, I like football. As a matter of fact, I think you could say I love football. I grew up watching football. Um, it wasn't until I was like, it was like, you know, early, early high school years when I started following the Broncos and John Elway and all that. But before that, I just, I love watching football. And I'll still, if there's football on, college football, I mean, they'll put high school football on. Like, I'll go, I'll watch it because I like it. I still like to pretend that I would like to play football, but that's probably not smart for me at this point. But like, I, I love the game of football. But the last seven years watching my team be so terrible at football has really made me think, do I really need this in my life? Like, do I need to watch them lose again? Do I need to suffer another season? Do I need to like get really excited for training camp and really excited for, you know, everything that, you know, we we did in the off season and then just to be let down and disappointed once again? Do I really like, like love football? Or do I just like my team? So, so I think about it in this way. And I said it was silly, and it is silly. But if you fail to identify the real source of your doubt, you might just end up throwing out your faith and your community and your belief based on something that, that, that others have done. So when I watch a, a Denver Bronco game and I say, hey, this sport is terrible. Like, this sport is not terrible. <laughs> this team is terrible. And so maybe you look and you project your anger at the world. You look at the hypocrites that you know in the church. You look at the problematic history of how Christians have behaved over the history of the church. The unloving ways that believers have acted to those in their own community and outside the church. But you're judging God by all of his worst representatives. You're turning off football because of one team. The worst team. Asaph is looking to the worst possible examples of God. But what is the true source of his doubt? What is the true source of his doubt? And that's what he continues to dig into. Next, we see that he's he's being honest and he starts to explore. If if this if this isn't really if I'm not really mad at God, what am I actually mad at? And he starts to see like what are the other places that I've searched for answers. Because if God can't give me the answers, then I turn somewhere else and I start searching for answers in other ways. Look at verse seven. Look at verse 13. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I'm afflicted all day long and I'm punished every morning. Often doubt creeps up 
and creeps in because we're looking everywhere else for answers except to the one who can provide them. This is another crucial question to ask. If you're questioning your faith and you want to do it without losing it, ask this question. Where else have I searched for answers? Where else have I been? Where else have I been that that I'm trying to get answers from in the world that I haven't gone to God? It seems like we'll try anything else. It's like me needing to call like anywhere on the actual phone, right? I don't want to talk to people, so I'll try to text first. And you get that text back that says, this is a landline. You can't text a landline. What are you, 90? Um, Okay, it's a landline. So maybe they have a website and I can send them an email, right? That doesn't work, but they got a spot on their, you know, on their website where you can fill in the contact form. And I'll do so many things where I could be off the phone already, right? Because I'm probably going to get a voicemail or I'm probably going to get, somebody might actually answer the phone and I could talk to that person. But that would be like, so like the worst, right? So, so I'll just do anything, Facebook message, website, carrier pigeon, anything before I'm going to dial your actual number. And I think that's how we often treat God. God, I know you have answers. I believe that. In the core of my soul, I believe you have answers, but I'm going to try a lot of other things first. Asaf recognizes that, that he was searching for answers and promises that God never made. And the promises that God never made, did I keep myself clean only to be punished? Did I have a, a perfect, you know, my perfect church attendance with no reward? Did I read my Bible in 90 days or a year? Where's, where's my reward? Now, this is, a, this is a little trick that your kids will pull on you. When you tell them to go clean their room, and maybe just mine, but like you tell them to go clean their room and they actually do it, and you're like, what's going on here? Well, once the room is clean, mostly clean, they come back and uh, Hudson, Hudson will come up to me and he's like, all right, dad, I cleaned my room. How much money did I make? Wait a second. <laughs> How much money did you make? Okay, that was, that was what you do for, like you still want a room, right? Like, I was, like hang on a second. I didn't promise money. I told you what to do. I gave you a command, go and clean your room, and you did it. And now you come to me asking for something that I never promised. Many deconversion stories are steeped in promises that God never made. You're mad at God for a promise that he didn't keep, but it's a promise that he didn't make. You know, this has been the danger of what is known and, and it has, been, it has been the danger and is the danger of what's known as a purity culture. Maybe you've heard that word before, maybe you haven't, but if you grew up like me in the church, in my generation, we had uh, the true love waits. I kissed dating goodbye. You know, all of those things is like, here's how you date and wait perfectly until marriage. And these are all based on commands of God. These are based on God's commands for sexual ethics. Don't have sex outside of marriage. And that was a, a commitment that we were making. And they would have huge like dances and all kinds of purity rings, all of this pledges, all of this sort of stuff. But the problem came not when we were trying to follow God's commands and laws, but it was when we attached a promise to it that God never made. What was the promise? If you do this, if you date and wait the right ways, then God is going to bless you in your marriage. You're going to meet someone who did the same things that you did. You're going to have your perfect match. And so what we're saying, if you wait and date correctly, God's going to reward you with a blessed marriage, a perfect match, someone who's the same way. If you do what God's asked, there's this promise that God never made. Follow this formula, get your reward. You can hear it in a soft word. He's like, did I keep myself clean? Did I keep my hands clean and my life pure for nothing? Where's my reward for this? What about... What about those who play by the rules? 
Do they, they wait and they do all the right things and they listen to their youth leaders and they just, they, they made the pledge, they made it, they get to marriage and marriage isn't as blessed as it was promised. Did I keep myself pure? Well, all of my friends, they chased the world and they chased sex. Now I'm here not happily married and they are, they seem to be fine. We could maybe describe them as that first way that a soft described the world and the wicked. And don't forget about the marriages that find disappointment because the marriage isn't blessed or pleasure doesn't come naturally or even, even they followed the rules and they can't have a family. Doesn't feel like a blessing. And what about those who didn't wait? One of the biggest dangers and fallacies of a purity culture is that it tells you if you break the rules, you're worthless. It puts so much stake in it, where virginity is seen as the only standard of holiness, and if you're made to feel you're made to feel like a failure, there's no grace. You're worthless. You're broken. You're unwanted. Nobody's going to want that. I literally stood next to another camp counselor, not at our camp. This is years ago. But I stood next to a camp counselor who was consoling a young lady who had come forward to confess her sexual sin, and and it was all that the the, the woman could do was just like you know, kind of patting her on the back, and she just didn't have the words to say because she didn't know what to say to this woman because in her mind, in her belief, this girl had failed. She'd thrown out the only thing that mattered. And so she said things like, God, God's going to still use you. It's going to be difficult. But and it's all of this kind of like backwards backflips and, you know, circles. We've got to work around this promise that God never made. And what about, what about those that are still single? They followed the rules. God, did I keep myself pure for nothing? What about those who didn't follow the rules? Unwanted, useless. When we accuse God of not keeping his promises. We need to make sure that they're actually promises that God made. Another place that we search for answers, not just the promises that God never made, but in the things that God would never do. The things that God would never do. Look back to verse 14. For I'm afflicted all day long and I'm being punished every morning. God, I've followed your rules and all you're giving me is punishment. I cleaned my room and I came back and asked for a reward, but all you did was punish me. See, Asaph is assuming that God is punishing him. It's an accusation we see from David when he looks to the sky and you can almost see him shaking his fist and saying, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone? We attribute the things that we're angry about, stuff that, something that God would never do. God, God told us he'd never leave us or forsake us. Jesus, it was his last words to his disciples. I'll be with you till the end of the age. And then we feel distant from him or we feel like he's not answering our questions. So we look and we say, God, you lied. You're not who you said you were. When we accuse, of God, when we accuse God of being something, we need to make sure that it's actually something that God is. Promises that he never made, things that God would never do or be. Asaf says something really interesting in verse 15. And I had to read this and kind of go back into study because it seems a little counterproductive. He throws this verse in here at 15 where he says, uh, where he says, if I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. If I just started telling everybody, which seems like, I mean, last week I felt like we kind of talked about that. Like, bring your doubts to God. Be open about your struggles. All of these things, like it's openness, it's honesty. We're peering behind the curtain of a temple worker. Shouldn't we want to be, um, have integrity and let everybody know this stuff? Well, there's, there's something here to discern. 
when you're walking through doubts, especially if you want to walk it faithfully, you have to honestly ask yourself this question. Is it possible that I am wrong? Is it possible that I am wrong? This is a, this is a practice that is really hard to get used to. Practice being wrong, unless you're married. You, get, you practice that all the time, right? Practice being wrong. When was the last time that you looked back and go, oh, I actually missed the mark there. I appreciate Greg's words in the communion meditation where he's looking back at raising his children and going, there's been times when I've missed the mark. There's been times when I've been wrong, when I've messed up. Here's what we need to know about this one verse that seems so randomly placed in here is that evangelism works both ways. Imagine the damage that Asaph could have done if he, instead of taking his doubts to God, instead of, instead of being careful and discerning what he just says out loud, if he just started like a podcast or a YouTube channel and he's like, I want to tell you guys all my questions with no answers. And he starts to get, you know, think about it. He's working in the temple. Imagine if he just goes in and he just starts telling everything in the middle of his process. The problem isn't that he's telling anybody. The problem is this isn't like a keep all your doubts to yourself. I don't think he's saying that. But it's taking everything outwardly before you've done any work on the inside. Especially before any work has been done on the inside. I've had to wrestle with this as a leader because um, some of you may have noticed if you've been coming here for a while. I used to walk around the stage a lot and I still pace and that sort of stuff a bunch. But the camera workers just like get so mad. No, it's not their fault. Um, but like. One of the things I've tried to do is, is everything that I want to say on this stage, I try to write on paper <laughs> most of the time. And uh, because what I can do is get fired is what I can do is uh, I could get up here and just start telling you every little thought that I've had this week, every little doubt and question and all of that. And some of my college students can tell you that you're like, yeah, we've seen you in those, those moods, like late night ski trip, just sort of thing. You're like, you just say a lot of stuff that really we probably shouldn't repeat those sort of times. I could just come up here, open up my heart to you. And you guys would all be like, is he still a Christian? Like, does he love Jesus? Cause I, I'm not really sure. Imagine if it's off these first few verses that we've read. If he just goes into the church, into the temple, and he just starts going, I got some stuff I want to process with you guys out loud in the open. I don't have any answers. I'm just going to leave you hanging. As Corey sings the song, you're all going to be going like, what, what did we learn today? Nothing. We feel worse. Thank you, Alan. I, I learned this from a Pastor Levi Lusco when he said this. He said, my journal and my wife get to see my wounds, and my church gets to see my scars. And that's not because I don't love my church. It's not because I don't love you people and want to be vulnerable with you, but I have layers of vulnerability built into my life. I'll actually change that quote just a little bit because I'm so, so terrible at journaling. So here's, here's how I would say it. My wife and my counselor, they get to see my wounds and help me struggle and help me through those and help me heal. Y'all are going to get to see the scars. It wasn't because Asaf wanted to be dishonest or wanted to pretend or he didn't want because he wanted to hide he was just discerning that he still had some wounds that were healing. He said, if I had taken my open wounds and just blasted the whole congregation, I would have betrayed the kingdom of God. The people of God would have been betrayed by me just going. The layers of vulnerability. This is the beauty of a church like Northside that is multi-generational. 
I try to tell our college students this all the time. Like, you are blessed to be in a place where there are people ahead of you, generations ahead of you on this walk of doubt and struggle. Find them. Talk to them. Struggle with them. Have them pour, in with, pour into you. People that have walked these doubts before you. As we get to verse 17, this is kind of the crux of the whole psalm. We see Asaf find his answer. Surprise, surprise, he goes to church and finds his answer. There's a chapter in, in the book that I've mentioned so many times, After Doubt by A.J. Swoboda. There's a chapter just called Go to Church. Um, you guys that are here this morning will love that chapter. You're like, yeah. But those of you who are not here, maybe you're listening online, um, it, it, might, it might rub you the wrong way, but it's just, just this reminder that in the presence of God, in the community of God, he literally goes to church and, and, and this is, there's no denying that when you look at this psalm, something changes when he's in the community of God. It's the turning point of the whole psalm. In the presence of God, he, he, he turns from the sources and the faulty answers and the arrogance. And he starts to realize that, that maybe it's not God that's wrong. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the one that's misguided. In verses 18 and 20, God reveals to him the truth of the wicked. He gets some kind of a revelation where he gets to see that, yeah, they're pursuing things of the world. They seem like they're getting ahead. It seems like something you would envy and want to be. But their end, as it says in the scriptures, will be swift. And they're chasing after the wind, as Ecclesiastes would say. And then you get to verses 21 and 22. Asaf starts shifting the blame from his earlier rant. Remember, he was like, God, all of this stuff, it's all your fault. God is good, right? Are we sure that God is good? Look at what's happening. He starts realizing that he's not been seeing God clearly. Look at verse 21. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal towards you. There's some, there's some self-reflection going on from the psalmist. There's some even clinical stuff you could pull out of here. where like embittered and my innermost being was wounded. That's, that's embodying the idea that like I am hurt, therefore I'm hurting other people. I am mad, so I'm screaming at God. It, it can be a dangerous place when we commit ourselves strictly to deconstruction. We've been talking about deconstruction and that word, and, and I've tried to talk about it in the most positive light possible because I know people that are walking through it and struggling it. And when they say deconstruction, they literally mean, I'm trying to figure this out. I want to be closer to Jesus. I want to be a person, a man or a woman after God's own heart. I want to be that. But there's another side. There's a dark side to deconstruction. When you commit yourself so far to deconstructing that you become something else, like a little kid with a hammer and everything looks like a nail. AJ Swoboda says it this way. We more from going... We morph from doing deconstruction to being deconstructors. A Christianity disproportionately centered on deconstruction creates a certain kind of Christian. When we're constantly tearing down, we become destructive. A wounded, hurting believer with a hammer. Asaf realizes that he may have taken a sledgehammer and started swinging with the wrong motives. He, he was wrong. He was like an, an unthinking animal. His just primal brain kicked in and everything about him was just like, whatever I feel, I'm going to start swinging. God, how could you? He was wrong about God. 
He admits it and he puts down the hammer and his deconstruction is complete. Now it's time for renewal. Or if you were speaking in Lego terms, you'd pull back a few pages, taking everything apart, and it's time to start putting the pieces back in place. It's time to start understanding the truth of God again. Paul calls this in the New Testament, he calls it being renewed by the transforming of your mind. Or I said that backwards, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. How can I make sure that these answers are sufficient? How can I make sure I'm not going to have this question again? Well, the the hard answer to that is you're not going to be sure that you won't have this question again. But a question we could ask ourselves, if you want to question your faith without losing it, would be this. Last question, if will I be content if God only answers with his presence? Henry Nouwen said, getting answers to my questions is not the goal of the spiritual life. Living in the presence of God is the greater call. This is where the psalm ends. It actually ends much where it began, but this time he's not being sarcastic. Remember the sarcastic? God is here, right? Are we sure? Are we sure that God is in our midst? Are we sure that God is in this place? Because it doesn't really feel like it. After doubt, after deconstruction, reconstruction, after renewal, it's no longer answers that Asaph is looking for. He's no longer accusing God of being unjust or fair. He now sees God as God has always been. Not a God that breaks promises. Not a God that changes. He now understands that he didn't need answers all along. He just needed God. Just God. Look what he says in verse 28 as he wraps this whole thing up. But as for me, remember in the beginning he said, as for me, my foot slipped. As for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. His mind has been renewed. He's no longer looking for answers. He just wants to know that God is there. From a question of is God good to is God there. God is here, right? To God is right here. My prayer for our church is that we would walk so closely to Jesus. That we would run so unashamedly towards him. But when, when, when the doubts come and the questions come, that we would continue walking towards him, walking with our doubts, willing to walk with unanswered questions and his presence be enough. I don't know where the road is taking me. I don't have all the right answers, but I know that Jesus has set the path before me. Through doubt and uncertainty, God is not scared of your doubts or your questions. He doesn't change as we walk through them. But he's there. From God is here, right? Right? We believe that to God is right here. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to respond. If you're online, you can obviously find on our website, northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. That's also available to those of you in the room if you didn't want to stand up and come to Decision Point as we're singing and um, worshiping together. You can also use that same thing on your phone or or the the connection card there in front of you. But this morning, I I just want to invite anyone who wants to have that conversation. Maybe you've been walking alone. Just need a reminder that God is here, that the church is here to walk with you. You want to stop shaking your fist at God for things that he's not, for promises he hasn't made, and faithfully follow him through your doubt. I'm also going to put a list 
of about four books that I've used. The majority of my study has come from the Bible and those four books. We're going to put that on the YouTube description. It's actually on the NCC app as well. Um, You'll be able to find these books or just message me and I'll shoot them to you as well. Um, Just these four books that have been super helpful for me in the seasons of doubt and walking with people through the seasons of doubt. So church, I'm going to ask that you stand with us as we worship our way out of here. I'll be over here in Decision Point if you want to have a conversation or need prayer this morning. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.